Well, great to be with you uh, this morning and to have the uh, pleasure of opening God's Word with you. We're going to be looking the next three weeks at 1 Peter. Uh, So 1 Peter, and uh, we're going to start in chapter 4, which may seem like an odd place to start, but it's all about me. And I looked at the first couple of chapters earlier in the year and kind of worked on chapter 3 while we're all apart, and so we're up to chapter 4 and (laughs) you just got to catch up. 1 Peter, chapter 4, and the first 11 verses. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they'll have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they may be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God, in regard to the Spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for ever and ever. Amen. Last year on the 20th of November, um, the body of John Chow was discovered on North Sentinel Island uh, off mainland India. Uh, He had gone there to take the gospel to the Sentinelese, uh, a people group that had very little contact with any outsiders and as far as we can tell, no contact ever with the gospel. Um, Along with others, the press in Australia just turned on John Chow and in his death condemned him and his evangelistic fervour, and anyone else who would be foolish enough to risk their lives to take the gospel to people who really didn't want to hear anyway. I didn't, I wasn't surprised by that, but I think I was a bit surprised by the number of Christian friends I had who piled on, who also talked about the foolishness of doing this thing. And I, I have no particular insight into the, uh, the details around uh, what Chow did, but well, what, it, what it highlighted for me is the way that the game has changed, the way that the mood has changed amongst Christian people, that we do not expect to be uncomfortable because we follow the Lord Jesus. We do not expect uh, to be put at any kind of risk because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, much less do we expect that it might ever cost us our lives to follow the Lord Jesus. 
Now, I know that's not actually true, even just for the people who are in the room here today. So we have brothers and sisters here uh, who've come from other lands uh, where it is true that Christians face the threat of death for following Jesus. But it's, it's not true for us, is it? Uh, some of you choose to go back uh, to Syria or different provinces in China. It could be true again. But it's not, it's not true here now for us. And our expectation is so far to the other end that it just seems absurd to us that we would even have to suffer some kind of discomfort a lot of the time for following. After all, don't I get the best of life by following Jesus? Isn't Jesus my ticket to you know, happiness, wealth and prosperity? Well, you know that that's not true, uh, not just for many people in other parts of the world, uh, but throughout history it has certainly not been true uh, that following the Lord Jesus has been a safe option. In fact, in God's providence, exactly 180 years earlier to the day, uh, two men, John Williams and John Harris, landed on the island of Eramanga in what is now Vanuatu. Uh, they landed there, taken by a tall ship. Uh, they set a longboat off the tall ship. They rowed these two men to the shore. The longboat turned around, went back out to the tall ship. As they were hoisting the longboat onto the tall ship, they realised both men had been murdered already and they were later eaten by cannibals. Was that the end? No. Over the next 20 years, a trickle of missionaries kept going back to the New Hebrides. They kept going back. Some were murdered and eaten, some were driven away, but people kept going. They kept putting themselves forward as witnesses to the gospel. I wonder, could you imagine signing up for that? Under threat, bracing for a fight... Well, maybe you're not going to go to an island where, there's, uh, where there are cannibals who want to eat you, uh, but uh, would you go to the local PNC meeting? <laughs> I mean, would you go there and stand up uh, in a debate about gender identity? Uh, would, you, uh, would you stand up there against the social pressure in all kinds of ways that will mark you out as a Christian and as somebody who deserves no respect at all. I mean, we hate it, don't we? Can you imagine walking into a meeting like that or some kind of public meeting or maybe you're part of a political party or you, and you go into the meeting, you step into the public square and you own the gospel of Jesus? Even just thinking about doing it on social media and never kind of even getting out of your bedroom is frightening enough, isn't it? Can you stand up? Well, how do you feel as you do that? Do you brace for a fight? <coughs> if you think about doing that kind of stuff, do you tense up? And see what I'm even doing? <laughs> uh, do you tense up and get ready for a fight? Are you ready for the fight? Are you bracing for a fight? Are you bracing for suffering? It's a bit new for Australia, isn't it, to to be bracing for a fight, but it's not new for Christians and it's, well, 
the way that we've gone over generations in Australia, that's been the unusual thing. Uh, we're now much uh, more part of the mainstream. 1 Peter 1, verse 4. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. The ridicule, the social isolation, the put-downs, we know what that feels like, don't we? Your homophobic, sexist, out-of-date, fundamentalist, moralistic morons. That's what people think of us. In Peter's day, the unbelievers were puzzled and angered that the Christians did not join in and so it is with us. And, and the kind of persecution that Peter's writers were facing I think is similar to the kind of persecution that we're facing. Not necessarily the threat of death but the threat of social exclusion, uh, the threat of condemnation. Uh, the word there that's used for the abuse heaped on Christians is the word we get blasphemed from and there's, there's a link between criticising and defaming and abusing believers and blaspheming their God. God takes these things personally. And so as we get ready to face a new year, we're bracing for a fight, right? Are you tensed up and ready? Well, the amazing thing is, in Peter's letter, while he knows that this opposition is there and is coming and is growing, just like it is for us, he doesn't say brace for it. He actually says something more like embrace it. Embrace it. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Arm yourselves. It's, ready. it's a fight, right? It's aggressive. Time to man up. But to man up to do what? To arm ourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had, which was... Not only to accept, but to embrace suffering and even death. I mean, Jesus, the picture that, that is painted of Jesus through 1 Peter is the Jesus who submitted willingly to suffering and death and did not retaliate. Think back to chapter 3, verse 18, uh, where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. That's what we're to be like. Now, it's not saying that his suffering and our suffering is exactly the same, uh, just as his relationship to sin is not the same as our relationship to sin, but, but there's a connection. Jesus didn't sin, we obviously do, and we'll not be sinless or perfect this side of the return of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' suffering and death are described almost interchangeably uh, and that is not Peter's expectation for his readers that suffering would necessarily be linked to death but, but the kind of connection that we have to Jesus' suffering and death is actually spelt out really clearly by Peter and it's not just that Jesus suffers for us but he suffers leaving us an example so back in chapter 2 it says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. 
When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, Jesus suffered and died for us, but not just for us. He left us an example to follow in the way that he embraced what came his way, being prepared to endure suffering for the sake of following Jesus, having that attitude or that intention, being prepared to suffer, is where Peter's leading us in chapter 4, verse 1. So are you prepared to do this? The one who is prepared to suffer is not sinless, but they have made a break with a life of sin. A commitment to embrace suffering, if needs be, is evidence of your intention or will to flee from sin. Are you ready to cop the abuse? Are you ready to embrace the insults, the pain, the isolation that might come from sticking your head up for Jesus? If you are, then you've made a break from the life of sin, a break from the desires of the world. It's actually a really stark choice, isn't it? Do you choose to live for Jesus or not? Um, back when I was a, a student at college, uh, everybody stands up here tells these stories, I'm sure. Um, but back when I was a student at college, we went to college mission and, uh, and on college mission I remember two blokes who came back from a, a, a period of cold contact evangelism. They went knocking on doors in the suburb where we were uh, going on mission. They came back and they were really pumped and excited and, uh, and they proceeded to tell us how they must have been doing everything right because every door that they stopped at, they were insulted and persecuted. And, uh, and so it was a great confidence boost to them that they must have... Um, now, it ain't necessarily so. Hey? <laughs> so I knew these guys and if they came knocking on my door late in the afternoon when I was busy trying to do something else with the kind of arrogant attitude that they always stepped out with, they might have also copped some abuse. And it wouldn't have been for the sake of the gospel at all. So I'm telling you there are ways of bringing insults on yourself. There are ways of bringing on the suffering and that's not what this passage is about. So it's not go out looking for suffering, go out seeing if you can generate some suffering. Just saying, are you ready? If it comes, do you have the mindset that's willing to embrace it if it comes? That's what Peter's writing about. Jesus, our model who willingly submitted to suffering and death. But that wasn't the end for Jesus, of course. Jesus isn't just the sufferer, but he is also the judge and the life giver. You see in verse 5, although the people might now make choices to ignore Jesus and live for themselves or for their own pleasure, one day all of us will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the ultimate judge and this of course is why the gospel must go out because all will stand before him one day and have to give an account. And for those who don't hear or respond to the gospel... Jesus 
is only the judge. But for those who do hear and respond to the gospel, Jesus, verse 6, is the life giver. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, that they may be judged according to human standards in regards to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. See, as Christians suffer and die, people see that what happens to our flesh, our bodies, is just the same as what happens to anybody else's body. That's being judged according to human standards. But we are given a life that goes beyond the grave. We're given the spirit. We live according to God. We live beyond death according to God, a life that is not extinguished by suffering or even by death. Jesus is the one who gives us this life. What kind of life is it? Well, it is a different life, not just after death, it's a different life here and now. It's a reformed life. Uh, Do you see the contrast, contrast between the life of the unbeliever and the reformed life? It's in verse 3, the life of the unbeliever is a life of debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. That marks out the person who is living for their own pleasure, their own passions. That's the lifestyle that the rest of Australia can't believe we don't want to join in with. Why wouldn't you want all of those things? And Peter says, you've spent enough time on that. You've wasted enough time living like that, verse 4. Now, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I make no special claims to know what has gone on in your life or what's going on right here and now. Uh, You may struggle with addiction uh, to alcohol or to other drugs. You may have a particular issue with sexual temptation or sin, For you it might be envy or greed or harbouring grudges or destructive relationships. You may struggle with that right now. Or maybe you're just living with the memories, the guilt, the consequences of those things in your past. Or maybe you think I haven't got any of those things and your battle is with self-righteousness or whatever it is. All of us, all of us, Peter expects will have things that we feel rightly ashamed of. The evil one would like you to believe that you are the only one in the room right now struggling with that thing, whatever it is. The only one with that background and that no matter what you do, you'll never get rid of the shame and the guilt that comes every time you think of it again. But look carefully, Peter expected all of his readers to have something like this in their background. But through the death of Jesus, we do not have to fear judgment. We are not trapped in that guilt and shame. We can't unsee the things we've seen or undo the things we've done, but we can make a decisive break and leave them behind. We can choose to be done with sin. We can choose to embrace the new life Jesus offers. Do you see what it looks like in verse 7? See the contrast here. Instead of drunkenness, sober-mindedness. Instead of the lust of verse 3, loving one another deeply or constantly. Instead of using our houses for orgies, we use them to offer hospitality. 
instead of living for our own pleasure, we use what we have to serve others. The social historian Rodney Stark has done a lot of research into the um, causes of early church growth in the early centuries and, um, and it's something that actually needs explaining. How on earth did the gospel grow so quickly? How did the church grow so quickly? And uh, amongst a whole bunch of other factors, uh, Stark identifies that it's actually love. It's the love that Christians showed for one another and even for outsiders that was so contagious and so powerful. And it's uh, one of the ways in which it's most ably demonstrated is as the Black Plague, as the bubonic plague um, went through Europe, the Christians were the ones who stayed and looked after the sick. And so their communities lived. And they had a witness of somebody who was prepared to risk their lives for the good of others. And people saw that and found it compelling, just as Jesus said they would. Now, it's a bit awkward to talk about because um, I can't tell you many details about this without drawing attention to people who don't need attention drawn to them, but um, the way the gospel is growing in the Middle East at the moment, frankly, is extraordinary. Now, there are countries uh, where so many of the Christian population in places like Syria and Iraq over the last few years have been slaughtered or driven out. But in the surrounding nations the witness of Christians who have loved and embraced refugees has been incredibly powerful. So friends I know who run a Bible college in Lebanon shut down the Bible college for a year just to cater for refugees. And at first they were treated with absolute suspicion as most of the refugees coming into that part of Lebanon were Muslim and they didn't know what to do with them. But over the months as trust built up and people worked out that they actually just wanted to love and look after them, the word spread around and they have seen hundreds of people come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And the witness of refugees going into places like Germany um, and, uh, and Egypt and other places has been similar. Now, it's not a, uh, it's not a picture of kind of uh, a, a glorified... Uh, triumph with no setbacks by any means at all. But it is extraordinary gospel growth amongst uh, people groups where there's been no gospel growth for centuries. But it's not just in the Middle East, is it? Love and hospitality are compelling wherever they're found. Uh, So I know of a church um, here in Sydney that has a reputation uh, for having a massive evangelistic growth in their congregations. And this was tracked uh, from the mid-90s forward and this church did grow largely through conversions, uh, not transfer growth. And uh, people looked at the church and they thought, ah, I don't know what's going on here. The leadership's all right, you know, it's solid, but the preaching is not good. Music, terrible. Buildings, hopeless. Why are people coming? And it actually all comes down to one single mother who made it her mission to offer hospitality to anyone who looked like they didn't fit in at church. Now, the one single mother hasn't been responsible for all these conversions. But what what happens is the person who's been loved and looked after in that kind of way does the same thing for others. 
And so here we are now, uh, 20 years down the track, and this is a church that still loves and embraces the outsider. That's what hospitality is. And do you see that that mindset is actually at the heart of all Christian ministry? Using whatever we have to serve others out of love. So God is the giver of all good things. So we we pray we don't do things in our own strength. We don't do things for our own glory, our own recognition. Uh, Whether it's money that we have or a home or the ability to teach or to sing. If you look at verses 10 and 11, we do it to serve others out of love in the strength of God for the praise of Jesus. Uh, This, I think, is what the reformed life is all about. It's instead of living for ourselves, we live to serve others out of love in the strength of God for the praise of Jesus. And some people will see that and they'll be attracted to it and they'll ask a reason for the hope that you have. And others will see that and they'll be confused or even angered by it and they'll heap abuse on you. And I'm asking, are you ready to embrace it either way? Are you ready to live that way and embrace the consequences either way? That, I think, is what Peter is drawing at here. So what's the year going to hold for us? Verse 7, the end of all things is near. So what do we do? How do we respond? Do we look to the skies and pray for Jesus' return? Well, that's not a bad thing to do. Do we separate from the world? Do we just mark time? Well, no, Peter says the end of all things is near, so choose life. Embrace it. We live to serve others out of love in the strength of God for the praise of Jesus. The glory goes to him, so live for his glory. It means we don't have to be afraid. We don't brace for a fight. We embrace whatever comes from living faithfully for Jesus. I mentioned this trickle of missionaries at the start that kept going back to the New Hebrides. So 20 years after those first two men went and were murdered, a young Scotsman named John Payton turned up. He sailed there with his wife and young toddler. Within months, uh, the wife and the child were both killed. But John Payton stayed there for another 40 years. Uh, He lived through some of the most extraordinary difficulties and challenges and threats. On one occasion, there was a hunting party set out to find and kill him. So he climbed in a tree and hid. And I want to finish today by just reading you a section out of his autobiography where he describes the night that he is hiding in a tree uh, while the cannibals are looking for him down below. He says, I climbed into the tree and I was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there lived before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yell of the savages. Yet I sat there amongst the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered amongst those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone and yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I would never grudge to spend many more nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Saviour's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. 
if thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend who will not fail you yet? You hear what he's saying there? It's actually in the experience of opposition, of threat, of suffering, that he was cast on the mercy of God and that he enjoyed a depth of fellowship that he had not known before. We are never alone in our suffering. Do you know what it's like to have a friend who will not fail you in the next tough time? You see, we do not need to brace for a fight or be afraid of what may come. But we can embrace anything that comes as we live for Jesus. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that in your word you remind us of the love of the Lord Jesus, Jesus who willingly suffered and died that we might have life. Father, we pray that by your spirit you continually transform us to be more like him. And we pray, Father, that we would be ready to embrace whatever comes as a result of living for him. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.